So, as I was preparing this sermon, I listened to uh, I listened to a Pandora station. Right, Pandora is a uh, it's an internet. Uh, music station where you can set it up by your likes and your and your your musical interests and so um, I've got I've got a my favorite go to station when I'm writing sermons and maybe this will help you understand some things as you listen to my sermons uh, it's it's based off of uh, Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash and so as I was preparing this sermon uh, Waylon Jennings came on with his song. Um, are the good times really over for good, right? And I thought it was, it was, I don't know if appropriate is the right word, but as this church prepares to enter into a big transition, um, it, it helped me remember that uh, Jesus is far better than Waylon, right? Because we have a tendency to look at transition and change as something that... It, is only going to bring harm. And, and we know that we love, trust, and serve a faithful God. And while Chevys and Fords may not last for 10 years anymore, right? Waylon may have gotten that right. The truth is, is that God has not given up on this church. And I, I don't want you, as you're looking into the future, to feel like whatever has happened in the time that Brian has been here and whatever has happened in the time that I've been here, it, this was not, this church is not a cult of personality. Andy and Brian are not the center of this church. Jesus is. In fact, if Andy and Brian were the center of this church, the doors probably would have been closed by now because we are fallen, broken people in need of grace just as much as you. But because we've taken what God has given us, because we have trusted in him and we have sought to make disciples and, and stick to his word and to love him and let that love transform our lives, we've seen lives changed by the gospel. And so, as I prepare to spend my last three weeks with you, all right, Megan and I got emotional last night as we talked about how, like, we've only got two more Sundays in Hatch, or I'm sorry, two more Saturdays in Hatch, and after today, we only have two more Sundays in Hatch, right? It's, it's starting to feel real. The gravity of this is, is starting to bring some pain into our hearts, and can I, this wasn't planned, but I just, I just want to say this. Um, I've, I've heard that there have been some grumblings around town about, uh-oh, what's, what's happening at First Baptist? Why is, why is he leaving? Um, the only thing that's happened here is we've seen God's grace again and again. Brian is not running from anything here, and I am not running from anything here. Um, I, I wouldn't even use the word content for my time here. I would say that we have been overfilled with joy. Me serving as your pastor, Megan and the kids being here. And so I want to encourage you from John 15 over these next three weeks. 
I want us to look at, at really, it's not the full teaching of Jesus, but it's the beginning of his teaching as he calls his disciples and he calls his church to abide in him. And so my hope in these last couple of weeks is to encourage you to abide in Jesus, remain in him, stay in him. And if you do that individually, and if the church does it collectively, then God will continue to do what we've seen him do. And in fact, I would go so far to say that I'm with Paul in Ephesians, that, that if we trust him and we follow him, he is able to do far more than even anything we can imagine. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you today. And the best way I know how is to point you to Jesus. So let's jump into John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Um, a few background notes. John uh, was the last gospel to be written. In fact, John is the only disciple that lived to old age. Um, all of the other apostles uh, were persecuted and murdered by the Roman Empire or other kingdoms around the Roman Empire. John was banished to an island called Patmos. It's, it's off of the, the Greek shoreline, and, and, and he spent his time there writing. He, he wrote letters. He wrote the Revelation, right, that, that crazy book at, at the end of our Bible. Um, it's not crazy. It's, it's God's Word. It's good, but, you know, we can do crazy things with it, right? Um, but anyways, and he also wrote this gospel, and you notice with Matthew and Mark and Luke, they, they, they all sort of follow the same timeline. They, they follow the, the same historical story. And then John comes along and he writes a gospel that is centered around the seven statements that Jesus makes. And all of them are, I am. And so we're actually going to look at the last I am statement. It's actually not the last time Jesus says, I am. In John 18, he says, I am, when they ask if he's the Messiah, okay? So he has one more. But, but in terms of his theological teaching about who he is as the king of Israel, as the chosen one that has come to save not just Israel, but the world through his work on the cross and in the resurrection, this is the last moment where he gives a deep theological teaching with his I am. Okay, And so he's preparing his disciples. They, they have set their face to Jerusalem. He is going to die. And he meets with his disciples and he teaches them this. He says in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now, scholars love to try to figure out why Jesus uses the, the, the metaphor of vine here. And there are, there, there are some, some teachings in, in Greek philosophy that, that talk about vines, but that's not where Jesus is coming from here. Jesus is pointing these Jewish disciples back to all of the teachings in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, when God refers to Israel as the vine. And look, we just read it in Isaiah 5. Whenever the, the, the metaphor of vine comes up in the Old Testament, it's never good. It's always God does this work. He plants this vine. It begins good. And then it, it just all falls apart. 
And the reason it falls apart is because the people of Israel are not the final story for God. God, he chooses the nation of Israel. He blesses them. He makes them his people. He becomes their God. But they keep running after sin. And so God sends the true vine. He sends himself. He sends his son. That's why Jesus says, I am the true vine. He's telling them, I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the one that Israel has been longing for. I am the one that will not break the covenant. I am the one that will keep the covenant. And then he refers to God the Father as, actually the word here is not vine dresser, right? The word here is farmer. It's the simple Greek word for farmer. But we translate it as vine dresser simply because most of the time when we talk about vineyards, we don't call those folks farmers, right? We call them vine dressers. And so trying to be uh, culturally, uh, not appropriate, culturally consistent, instead of saying farmer here, it says vine dresser. But Jesus says that his father is the farmer, which if you go back to, to Isaiah 5, it has that idea of He's the one who builds the fence. He's the one who builds the, the watchtower. He is the one who builds the canals so that the water can get to the vine. He is the one who takes care of the vine, keeps it in health, keeps it doing what it's supposed to do. And after verse one, if you're taking notes, this is the first part of our big idea. First hatch is in good hands, Okay? When you think about Jesus being the vine and God being the vine dresser, you can rest in the fact that if you stay connected to Jesus, I don't want to jump too far ahead in the sermon, but you know where I'm going with this if you're familiar with this story. If you stay connected to Jesus as an individual and as a group of believers, then you are in good hands. Nothing will cause you to fail completely if you are connected to Jesus. We go to verse 2. Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that, that he being God, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So when we come to this, this, this word branch, okay, it is a singular word, right? And so it's fair to think of an individual, but I would like to argue that, that these branches that are connected to Jesus can be individual, but can also be a corporate body of believers. And you know what the corporate body of believers is, right? It's the church. And the reason I believe that is because when we get down to the you's, right? Abide in me as I in you. Jesus is using the plural you. So it's more appropriate to say, abide in me as I in y'all. Okay. But anyways, Jesus tells us, tells us that there's, there's two things that the branch can do. Either the branch can bear fruit or it cannot. And if a branch does not bear fruit, if there is no life change centered around Jesus from these branches, well, God will do to the branch what a vine dresser would do to the vine or a farmer would do to the tree. He's going to cut it off. He's going to take it away. Friends, don't miss this. This is God's judgment. 
This is Jesus saying, if you claim to be connected to me, but you're not abiding in me, if you claim to be mine, but there is no visible fruit, your life isn't being changed and the lives around you aren't being changed, then that means you're not really of me. And if you're not of Jesus, you will be cut off. You will be separated from God. You will fall under God's judgment. And then he turns to the branch that does bear fruit. And what does he say? We know this well, right? We're a farming community. It's going to be pruned. Now, most of us, we think Christianity should work like this. If I have faith in God and I do what's right and I live with integrity and I only worship him, then nothing but blessing and sunshine and rainbows and unicorns should fill my life. Friends, I hope by now you've seen the false narrative that is there. God is not preparing you to live like kings and queens on this earth. He is preparing you to live as kings and queens on the new earth when Jesus returns. And to do that, God has to remind you that you are a pilgrim here. This is not your home. And so this pruning that Jesus is talking about, there are are multiple levels of this. But one of it is God will discipline you. When you are in rebellion against him, he will discipline you. Like a good father disciplines his son, so does the father discipline his children. But not only will he discipline you, sometimes he brings hardship into your life. And sometimes he brings suffering into your life. And the only reason he does it is to draw you closer to him. Friends, one of the things that I want to make abundantly clear to you is that Brian being called somewhere else and me being called somewhere else is not necessarily God's judgment and discipline against this church. This is a healthy, loving, growing church. Sometimes God brings hardship to draw you to him. Friends, do not miss the fact that God may be putting you into this place as a corporate body of believers. He may be putting you into this place as an individual, not to smite you for something you've done wrong, but to draw you to him so that you follow him and love him even more. Notice why we're pruned. Go back to the second half of verse two. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may what? Bear more fruit. Friends, God brings hardship and suffering so that the people around you will see how good God is even in the midst of crummy circumstances. And they want what you have. God spreads the gospel through people that are hurting and yet trusting him. If if God were only to bring sunshine and riches, people wouldn't know that God was your God. They would think that the sunshine and the riches are your God. But when God brings you to hardship, when he brings you to suffering, and you still hold fast to him, then people know that Jesus is your hope. 
Jesus is the one that you're clinging to. And friends, Jesus makes it abundantly clear here. The pruned life is the most fruitful life. And we as a farming community, we know that. There's a reason we cut back our pecan trees at the end of the season. So that they will grow more healthy the next. The next part of our big idea is this. First hatch is in good hands because God cares about the health of his people. God cares about the health of his people. He cares about the health of this church. He cares about the health of you as an individual believer. He cares about the health of your marriages and your children. And this health word, I'm not necessarily talking about physical health. I'm I'm talking more in the spiritual sense. But God cares about your physical health too, right? And sometimes he brings hardship there to help us to lean on him more. But God cares about how spiritually healthy you are and this church is. So, re- so we go to verse 3. And Jesus continues. He says to his disciples, Already you are clear, clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now again, this you is plural, so it's y'all. right? And he says... Already y'all are clean. He's saying that you're pure, you're innocent, you're able to stand before God. Friends, as sinners, none of us can stand before God. But Jesus is proclaiming that his disciples, those that follow him, his church can stand before God. Why? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. He's telling us that his teaching has already begun the cleansing process in the disciples. Now we know that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so it is the gospel, the proclaimed word of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that saves us. But it is continuing in the full counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation, sitting under the teaching of the Holy Spirit through the writers of the Old and New Testaments, that has a cleansing effect on our souls. It has a cleansing effect on our minds. It presents us, like Paul says of Jesus and the church in Ephesians chapter 5, like we've been washed in the word. The disciples are made clean and they are staying clean by hearing again and again Jesus' teaching about himself and about the kingdom. The closer he draws them to him, the cleaner they get. So the second part of our big idea is this. Jesus is cleaning y'all with his word. Jesus is cleaning y'all with his word. And then we go to verse 4. Jesus makes a command. Abide in me. As I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Friends, this word abide, it carries with it the idea of living in or staying in or or even remaining in. And so this is, if, if you're one of those that are spiritually on the fence, this is your invitation. Trust Jesus and live in Jesus. Make him the center of who you are and make him the center of everything that you do. 
Let your thoughts and your words and your deeds be stained by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Believers, this is Jesus telling you, remain in me. Set up your residence in me. The, the word abide is, is closely connected to another word, abode, right? An abode is somewhere that you live. It's another word for your house. And so Jesus is telling us to take up residence in him. And he says, abide in me as, and I in you. So he, and again, this is y'all, this is plural. He's saying, I've taken up residence in you. The Holy Spirit believer has come upon you and lives in your heart. And when we collect together believers as the church, Jesus is present among his people. And he's telling us that if you cut a branch off of the vine, it cannot bear fruit. Why? Because it's no longer connected to the vine. It's no longer connected to its life source. It cannot get the water that it needs. It cannot get the nutrition from the soil that it needs. The branch must stay connected to the vine to live. Friend, if you think you can be a Christian and do it on your own, apart from Christ and apart from the church, you are kidding yourself. You will wither away. The only way as a Christian that you can find life is to do it within community and do it in community that is connected to Christ. You must, as a branch, stay in the vine. If you want to see your life being changed by Jesus and you want to see the lives around you changed by Jesus, you must abide in him. And so the final part of that second idea on our main idea is that Jesus is cleaning y'all with his word and changing lives in the valley as long as we abide in him. He is changing lives in the valley as long as we abide in him. That's the key, both individually and as a community. We must abide in him. So how do we apply this? What, what do we do with this? The first thing is, when we look at Jesus, we must see him as the source of our life, forgiveness, and hope. He is the source of life, forgiveness, and hope. He is the one who took us from being dead in our sin and raised us to be alive in him. He is the one who if you go through the gospel of John, he is the door to God. He is the good shepherd who tends to and protects his sheep. He is the life. He is the life-giving water that we need. You cannot be a Christ follower if you are not connected to Jesus by the gospel. Because He's our righteousness. As we stand before God condemned for our sin, it is his righteousness. It is his perfect living out of the laws of God in his life. It is him not breaking, not just the big ones, right? He didn't lie, he didn't murder, he didn't steal, but he kept every little law so that God could take his righteousness 
and give it to us when we place our faith in him. And not only is he our life and our forgiveness, but he's also our hope. From his resurrection to his promise of resurrection for those that trust, to his promise in the Gospel of John, to those two broken-hearted sisters who lost their beloved brother. You remember what he says? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Friends, that's our hope. That even though we still face our great enemy, death, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when Jesus returns, when that glorious day that we just sang about happens, we will enjoy the new earth, the new Jerusalem for eternity with our King. Friends, if you're on the fence today, I want to... I want to give you two quick truths. The first one is this. Common grace is real. Common grace is real. You, everything you've achieved in your life would not be possible if God wasn't gracious to you. He's the one that gave you breath to wake up this morning. He's the one that made sure you weren't a miscarriage in your mother's womb. He is the one that made sure that you were able to grow up in, in at least a, a semi-healthy and semi-stable environment, right? that you didn't die as an infant or as a child, that you were able to, to go to school, that you were able to, to learn the things that you needed to learn to find the success that you have found in life. All of that comes back to God's grace. No man is an island, and no person, no matter how great you may think that poem Invictus is, no one is the captain of their own soul. You can't wake yourself up tomorrow. If it weren't for God's grace, we would all die in our sleep. And so common grace is real. It's good, but saving grace is even better. So the way that we respond to God's common grace, the way that we respond to the fact that he did wake, up, wake us up this morning is to look beyond the fact that he's a creator and a sustainer, but to see the truth that he sent Jesus to live the perfectly obedient life, die the death that we deserved, and three days later, resurrect from the grave. So we respond to his grace. Christian, I think the way that we apply this is... When we abide in him, we're going to do four things. One, we're going to love him. Our hearts are going to see the beauty and majesty of Jesus. But two, we're going to love his word. We're going to love the good parts, right? The parts about how much he loves us. And we're going to love the hard parts when our sins are called out. And when we see his justice on others for their sin. We're going to see how good God is. Not only are we going to love him and his word, we're also going to love his ear. We are going to want to pray. We are, our hearts are going to long to spill out our struggles, our hopes, our dreams, and our successes to God. And remember what Jesus tells us when he teaches us to pray, right? He tells us God knows everything. He knows what you need. He knows what you're happy about. He knows your secret sins. There's nothing about you that God doesn't know. 
but he still calls you to commune with him in prayer. Just like... Just like, you know, one of my favorite days of the week is Thursday because it's my day off. And it means I get to spend an extra little bit of time with Megan. But it also means I get to be home when Judson comes home from school. And I love that. Because I ask him, hey, buddy, what'd you do? And, and I know, you know, he does the same thing every day. He works on a letter. He works on a number. He works on some colors. He plays at the playground. Right? I know everything he's going to tell me except for his lunch. Right? I don't know what he had for lunch, but it's normally corn dog, pizza, taco. Like That's normally his answer, right? But I still want to hear from him because he's my beloved son. God wants to hear from you because you are a beloved daughter or son of his. Not only do we love him and his word and his ear, but we also love his people. Friends, I know it is difficult Sometimes to be a part of a church, even a good and healthy church like ours. Sometimes our toes get stepped on. Sometimes we get offended. Sometimes we feel slighted. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed. But the church is a gift from God in all of her imperfections. Just like your spouse is a gift from God, no matter all of his or her imperfections. And your children are a gift from God, no matter all of their imperfections. The church is a gift to be loved, cherished, and served. That's why you're here. As a church, I think the way that we apply this is we need to be a conduit to Jesus. We need to be a conduit to Jesus. The people that come here, the gifts that show up here, um, everything that takes place here, it has to point back to Jesus. Everything that we do here has to flow from us to Jesus. Jesus needs to continue to be the hero. And finally, friends, in the public square, I think we need to seek fruit that flourishes. And I want to give just a couple real quick examples of this. Fruit is not just share the gospel, see them saved and baptized. Okay? Fruit is, it is growth from the Christian life that helps the people around that Christian flourish. And so sometimes good fruit is just an encouragement for someone that works for you or works with you when they feel broken down and beaten up. Just to let them know that you appreciate them and you're praying for them and you're glad that they're in your life. Sometimes fruit that flourishes is as simple as going to a restaurant and it's a bad day for the waitress and it's a bad day for you and the food comes out late and it comes out cold and you still tip them well. Because grace getters are what? Grace givers, right? We need to seek fruit that flourishes. We want to bless the people around us. And as we love them well, as we seek out their flourishing, it will give us a chance to tell them about the vine that we abide in. It will give us a chance to tell them about Jesus. Friends, I want you to know that you are in good hands. 
We are in good hands. God is good to us. I want to close with this story very quickly. In the 1950s, there was a vice president in Allstate named Dale Ellis. And his daughter was in her senior year of high school. And she grew violently ill. And things got so bad that eventually his wife took her to the hospital. And he went to work that day. And, and it, was, it was kind of hectic. And, and, and you know, his mind, it, it just wasn't there. His, his little princess was, he was afraid he was going to lose her. And so he finished up work, wrapped it all up, got to the hospital, and his wife met him in the lobby. And she said, Dale, everything's going to be all right. They figured out what's wrong. This is a great doctor. We're in good hands with him. Guess what the next day became the slogan for Allstate? You still hear it, right? You're in good hands. Friends, God knows this church better than I do or you do. He loves this church more deeply than I do or you do. As long as we abide in him, this church will be in good hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to spend in your word. Um, God, we just ask that you would... You would encourage us and build us up through your word. Father, help us to focus our eyes on you. Help us to see your glory this morning. And um, God, help us to rest in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, friends, it's time for us to respond. So if you're an unbeliever, you've, you've heard the gospel today, uh, quit running away. Friends, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Uh, I'll be standing up here. I would love to talk with you and pray with you if you are ready to do just that. Believers, uh, if God's working in your heart, I'm up here for you as well. I would love to talk and pray with you also. But let's all now stand and respond with singing.
All right, go, go ahead and be seated. Uh, we've got a, a quick video about Mission New Mexico to watch, and then we'll do the announcements, and, and then we'll head down for lunch.